following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Yeah, we lost some folks along the way. I'm so glad. I know it probably wasn't a peaceful meditation all the way through, given that we got disconnected, but this is such a powerful metaphor for life, right? We're not in control. We're not even in control of our live streams. Things, stuff happens and we adapt and adjust and we notice the reactivity, right, in our heart and disappointment and wanting to blame, wanting to complain. And if we have some stability, some wisdom, we realize that that complaining and blaming and denial and wanting to give up and whatever other pattern you might have noticed, we realize it's just not serving any purpose. It's just serving the purpose of planting seeds for more stress in our heart, more tightness in our heart. And this is what we're learning, you know, and we've been, I've been talking about and people have been discussing um, this very strongly encouraged practice of recognizing change, recognizing uncertainty, and really cultivating cultivating the perception. So we are less and less likely to be surprised. Like when change inevitably shows up, uncertainty shows up, the inability for us to actually control or govern the conditions in our life, when that keeps reasserting itself, wouldn't it be nice if we got to the place where we were no longer surprised when uncertainty showed up, when the ungovernability of life, you know, shows its hand. Oh yeah, that's right. I never was, I've never been in control. I get to play, I get to participate, I get to dance with, right, how we show up, the kind of attitudes with which we relate to the moment. That gets, that has a say in how things unfold for us. So it's not like we're just pure victims of an impersonal changing world. No, it really matters how we understand. Like, if I'm spending a lot of my psychic energy pretending I'm in control, there are consequences to that delusion, as we call it in Buddhism, right? When we allow the mind to be deluded, it has consequences for how things play out for us. If, an, if I instead cultivate, like I've been talking about and the Buddha strongly encourages encourages us, if we've been cultivating these perceptions of change, the ephemeral nature, perceiving the uncertain nature, perceiving how unsatisfying, like it doesn't give the ego what it wants. The ego wants certainty, it wants solid ground, it wants something that's dependable, but we don't get that, and that's unsatisfa unsatisfactory. So if we keep that in mind that things are changing and uncertain and ungovernable, that that's not satisfying, and that as things are changing and unfolding, that unfolding, that conditional unfolding, isn't very personal, because there are so many causes and conditions. Many of the causes and conditions we can't even discern. They're so subtle or so 
you know, not apparent to us. But that doesn't mean it isn't lawful or conditional. It just means it's very complex, the lawful, conditional unfolding of our own mood, let alone politics or this or that, different aspects of our lives, how we get along with our partner or how we get along with our friends and family. These are conditional, natural unfoldings. And the thing that we're encouraged to pay attention to is how our life actually changes. So when I'm keeping those in, those perceptions front and center, <clears throat> in, you know, in Buddhism we just call this Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is, right? The way it is under the surface level is, oh, things are changing. Everything is always, has always been in flux. It's always been this continuous activity of our mind and body. That's what experience is. It's a river, it's a flow. And so when we train our heart to keep this in mind, things are changing, therefore, <clears throat> from the egoic, the self point of view, experience will never be fully, completely satisfying because it's subject to change. It's subject to uncertainty. That's the essential quality behind everything. And that this uncertain, changing, unfolding is natural. It's impersonal. It doesn't belong or refer back to a me. It's part of this very um, profound, interdependent, natural unfolding of causes and conditions. And we can either align with that, the truth of the way it is, the way, you know, the Dhamma, the way it is, the way things are, or we can, in a sense, fight it or choose to be deluded, choose to be in denial. And, of course, that's where our habit energies tend to, to pull us back into the habit of denial. And, and when we're that way, we the perceptual the way we perceive and make sense of the world, it changes. So whenever it looks like I've been able to bend the world to my will, then I highlight that, right? Like, oh yeah, I, I can make stuff happen. If I can make this happen, then I can make everything happen the way I want it to happen. And then when we get too much of the other message, like I do exert myself, I participate, I engage, I try to control and things don't go my way, then I might have this other idea that the world is against me, the gods are against me. It's not fair. Other people, they get what they want in some permanent, meaningful fashion, but not me. And then I'll cling to that idea as if that's a permanent truth, as opposed to cultivating these perceptions, right? This is... In Buddhism, we don't think of things as being absolutely true. So when we talk about change, when we talk about the unsatisfactory nature, when we talk about the impersonal nature, certainly in later Buddhist traditions, they become like metaphysical truths. But the Buddha was very pragmatic. These perceptions we cultivate, keeping change in mind, keeping the experience of unsatisfactoriness in mind, keeping the perception of impersonal nature in mind. It's a real pragmatic strategy. It has 
practical effects on how our life unfolds. And this is something we can directly check out by ourselves, you know, just in our own experience. The Buddha talks about, and you've heard me talk about, I'm sure, the eight worldly winds. And we want to harmonize with the truth that there's pleasant and there's unpleasant. We want to harmonize with the truth that sometimes people insult me and sometimes people praise me. Sometimes I experience success, sometimes I experience failure. Sometimes there's praise, sometimes there's blame. And it really changes my idea. Like normally we we would think of happiness in terms of getting what I want and avoiding the stuff that I don't want. That's the very pervasive view that, you know, gets replicated by our culture over and over again. And so we're in this struggle to kind of lock it in, to lock in the security by having a really good place to live and really solid relationship with a person who will never leave me and never be different than I want them to be and a body that behaves, right? So this is like when we observe the activity of our thinking mind, how much of the day is my mind, a lot, right, is my mind involved in some strategy of certainty, of getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't want, as if that's going to give me solid ground. And sometimes, more and more often, because of practice, my mind has a more spacious, curious point of view, perspective, and it sees the stress involved in seeking safety and freedom in things that are not permanent, that are not ultimately satisfactory, and that are not cannot be personal, right? So even success that might come our way, praise that might come our way, that's not personal. It's like a real skill that we human beings have to learn, isn't it? That, you know, sometimes we will have success at work, for example, or somebody, you know, in a romantic relationship will really love us and love spending time with us, and we'll have those so-called nice experiences. The child, you know, the pet will sort of, will have a nice harmonious relationship. And in a way, culture encourages us to take it personally. But how to receive the goodness and the pleasantness of nice stuff happening when that happens in our lives without imagining it's more than what it is. Like it doesn't really refer back to me. So if I do experience some success in my life, how to not be afraid of letting in, because that would be an egoic thing too. Oh, no, 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 it's not about me, right? That's an egoic trip too. So how to really receive words of praise and people's appreciation and people's even their gifts because they're grateful, how to really receive that when it comes our way, but to realize that 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 doesn't that sort of goodness that I've been part of doesn't refer back. It's here as something that's being appreciated in this moment, but I don't have to make something more to it. Now we we generally learn this 
because it's so painful, we generally learn this when we fail <laughs> or when something doesn't go the way we want it, right? Because the, the deep habit, of course, is to personalize our failures. Oh yeah, I'm bad, I was stupid, I did it wrong, I'm no good, right? That's the deep habit that gets reinforced through culture too. But that's so painful. And the pain, hopefully, eventually, wakes us up like, what's going on? Why does this hateful sense of me, you know, not being good enough, why is this so painful? Is there another way? And we, we learn this distinction like, oh yeah, I did do this thing in a relative sense and it was unskillful or it wasn't helpful and now I'm getting a lot of blame and people don't want to be around me or whatever the consequence of that, you know, not being very good at something or not being very skillful. There are those natural consequences, depending on the situation, that come our way, and that will be very unpleasant. But I don't need to add a story about being no good to that ordinary experience of experiencing failure or the lack of success or people's insults or people's blaming me. I can just feel what that feels like. It's unpleasant, really unpleasant maybe even at times. But I don't have to construct the sense that this mistake that was made refers back to me. And the thing is, this isn't rocket science. I mean, I, I was in uh, elementary education for a while in the 80s and early 90s, and we taught kids this all the time. I'm sure you parents out there teach your child this all the time. You know, when we have to give a kid feedback about something they've done that isn't skillful, we tell them, you know, when you said this, when you did this, that action, you know, has consequences. It wasn't skillful. Look at look at cause and effect. You said that to that person and now they don't want to be around you. Or you did this and now you have to have a time out. You have to sort of leave the group and sit over here. This is what happens. But we don't tell the child, you're a bad kid. I mean... In the, in the olden days, we did, you know, and then we we got smarter about, like, really talking about skillful actions and unskillful actions and not about bad kids and good kids, right? Because we want people to understand that actions are skillful and unskillful, depending, or, or mixed, right? And our job as a human being is to recognize the skillfulness and unskillfulness so that that feedback gets internalized and then as we continue to interact and engage the world, it's informed by the feedback without personalizing what we're learning about our skillful and our unskillful actions. Otherwise, we get so entangled with the pride, the identity of being successful and the you know hateful attitude of being bad or being unskillful, and on and on it goes. And so the Dharma, the, the Buddhist teachings, and this practice of using experience as our ultimate teacher, and what does it teach us, right? We have these pointing out instructions that as we get close, instead of perceiving the experience in the moment like, what we're feeling. Instead of experiencing the feeling tone of what we're feeling in our heart as self, 
to see everything as a changing process, an uncertain process. And in that way, it's unsatisfactory. The ego doesn't find the ground it's looking for, that I can establish myself, I'm bad, I'm good, in a fixed way. It just, experience just ultimately won't support the establishment of a fixed self. And so in that way, that's why the Buddha says, like, notice how it's unsatisfactory from the point of view of a fixed self. Notice how impersonal what's happening is, that it's just the natural unfolding of so many causes and conditions. Keep those perceptions in mind, and something begins to get teased out of the heart, which is that deep habit of fixating, of clinging. There's a famous teaching that Ajahn Chah gave to uh, Ajahn Sumedho, one of his um, senior Western students, where he said, not moving forward, not moving backward, not standing still. So he's paraphrasing one of the teachings from the Buddha. So by not moving forward, Sumedho, this student of his, by not standing still, by not backing up, this semedo is your place of non-abiding. Because we're always looking for a strategy to be happy, but from that self-point of view. And if we're honest with ourselves and developing that stability of awareness and the wisdom that goes with that stability of present moment awareness, then we see how unsatisfying that pursuit of solid ground for the ego is. And it wears out that strategy like we're willing actually to be curious. And this is such a provocative teaching. This semedo is your place of non-abiding. Not trying to move forward to get somewhere, not trying to get out of a mess, to get out of the messiness of life, and not standing still. Maybe by that he means not freezing up like I'm helpless, I don't know what to do. So spinning with doubt. So without spinning with doubt and a sense of helplessness, without thinking you're going to solve the problem of life, without thinking that you can get out of life, that there's some escape valve where you can, you know, we can just go someplace where we don't have to deal with the complexity of our lives and of our relationships and our responsibilities. Even the unavoidable responsibility of having a physical body that we need to take care of or we experience the, we experience the consequence of not taking care of it. So in a way, we have to submit. That's why there's such a big deal in the Buddhist teachings about learning how to fully, completely embody our lives. And we talk a lot about the body because it's it's a, the most concrete way to come in, make peace with the reality of our lives. As one of my teachers talks about, um, you know, Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha, it's not optimistic, but it's also not pessimistic. It's realistic. And this emphasis on, on embodiment and being embodied makes us uh, more clear about the movement of feeling, like, oh, I'm feeling good, or I'm feeling bad, or 
I don't know what I'm feeling, but it's just moving that feeling tone. And when we're not wise, we basically tell ourselves a story based on whatever feeling tone we have. So if we're feeling a lot of pleasantness, then I'm going to start telling myself a story. Oh, you all love me, you know? So I feel good. And my good feeling is because you love me. And then immediately I'm in this sort of precarious place because if you stop loving me, I'm, I feel threatened by who I'll be if, you, if I sense that people don't like me. So when we uh, learn to embrace, learn to come into the body, learn to open to feeling, learn to open to the activity of our thinking mind, worry, planning, imagining, fantasizing, wanting revenge, raging, you know, all the different reactions and different psychological patterns that we just picked up along the way through the conditioning process of being raised in our families and being raised in this culture and in a, our particular cultural location as a you know, white man, a straight person, a, this person, a, that kind of person. We've all been conditioned through genetics, through the culture, through our families, you know, through the mental tendencies that arrived through many conditioning processes. And here it is, and we're having experience. And one of the most provocative and relevant aspects of our experience is this emotional feeling tone that is like a powerful river that we don't really understand. And then we get in these deep ruts of telling stories, having views about who I am or what's what, based on feeling tone. There's a really interesting story I remember a long time ago, Wendy Morris, some of you know Wendy Morris, a long time teacher and leader in our wider insight meditation community here in the Twin Cities. But I remember when Wendy was teaching the uh, children's program way back, probably in the late 90s here at Common Ground, um, she did, they did so many riffs on this old, I think it's probably originally a Chan or Zen story from China, but it's about a farmer struggling like a lot of farmers do to just get by and, uh, uh, you know, not that wealthy, just one workhorse. And then one day that workhorse ran away and all the neighbors came to the farmer and said, oh, too bad about that horse running away. What are you going to do? And this farmer had some wisdom, and they said, well, who knows? Who knows how this thing's going to play out? And they thought, wow, that's, that's pretty equanimous for that farmer. You know, it's, this person's main you know, workhorse just left, and he's got, they got crops to, to sow, and so on and so on, and what are they going to do? Well, sure enough, a few days later, that uh, big horse came riding back into the farm, and along with it came several other wild horses, which they were able to corral in the fenced-in area. And now instead of one older horse, the farmer and the farmer's family had several younger, powerful horses to train and to put into service on the farm. 
And uh, you can imagine where the story's going. The neighbors come and they go, oh, you are so lucky. You know, you didn't have any horses. Now you've got four or five horses. Oh, what great fortune. And the farmer, being wise, said, well, who knows? Who knows how this thing's going to play out? And a few days later, you know, the daughter of the farmer was trying to train the wild horses so that they could be used on the farm and got thrown off the horse and they broke their leg. I think it was a son because the next part of the story. So there they are. Uh, one of the main children of the farmer now with a broken leg and the farmer was really dependent on this elder child to help with the farm work. And now, of course, they can't help so much because they have a broken leg. And all the neighbors come by and say, oh, that's too bad. What are you going to do? Your child doesn't have, you know, doesn't isn't healthy. They've got a broken leg. And the farmer says, well, who knows how this thing's going to play out, right? Because there's always more chapters to be written. And sure enough, in a few days, the, you know, the National Army rides through town taking all the young adults away to fight in the next war and they leave the farmer's kid behind because they have a broken leg and the neighbors come by again and say oh you are so lucky all of our elder children got taken away to war we don't know what's going to happen to them certainly some will die but your child was spared because they had a broken leg you are lucky and the farmer says as you know well, who knows how this is going to play out? Yeah, maybe so, maybe not. Who knows? And this is this is a fun example of living in harmony, harmonizing with the ordinary and very deep truth of change, of uncertainty. So we're either going to make uncertainty a problem, like from an egoic, self-centered point of view. It's like me against uncertainty and I'm going to rally my ability to control circumstances to fight the effects of change that I don't like like when good stuff goes away or when bad stuff comes my way I'm gonna you know like draw the line in the sand it's me against you impermanence it's me against you uncertainty and I hope you're up to the battle and, you know, you can just sense how absurd that is because we're always the sense of self that has staked its safety and its well-being on being able to control what is uncertain, what is changing, what is ungovernable, right? Well, it's a setup for anxiety of never being at ease the kind of hunger and restlessness that we feel deep, deep in our heart. That anxiety that we feel deep in our heart isn't because anxiety comes with being a human being. It's, as the Buddha might say, anxiety comes with being ignorant of how to harmonize with reality. And Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha, it's all about being realistic or pragmatic or harmonizing with Dhamma. We open, we cultivate the stability of present moment awareness and the perceptions that things are changing, that things are unsatisfactory and impersonal, 
to counter the deep habits, the ignorant habits of imagining things are permanent, that we can have sense experience in a permanent way that takes care of insecurity, that we can be satisfied with sense experience in a lasting, unchanging way, that we can own it in a personal way that's me and mine, that that sense of me and mine can be satisfied eternally. But we never experience it, and we don't sense anybody else experiencing it, and yet we keep pursuing it because it's all we know on this sort of ignorant, from this ignorant point of view. It's all we can imagine. It's really a failure of imagination. And the Buddhist teachings are really a way of opening up our imagination to imagine this other possibility of, well, perhaps I can practice harmonizing with the way it is. I can practice seeing clearly, stabilize my present moment awareness, really value present moment awareness, feeling what I'm feeling, being in this body, being in the middle of the emotions that are coming and going and the thoughts that are coming and going and the relationships as we interact with our communities that are coming and going, the justice and the injustice, the healing and the sickening, the beauty and the grossness, ugliness of the world. Can I harmonize with that? And instead of seeking security in things being the way I want them, we're, we're aligning with a different kind of happiness. It's the happiness, or maybe better to say the peace, or the freedom of not needing conditions to be this way or that way. Now that's a very refined kind of experience or peace. The peace of not this heart, not dependent on conditions being this way or that way. So a lot of what we work with initially in our practice is the reactivity of things being this way, good or that way, bad. And we make peace with the reactivity because we can't go straight to that sublime peace of awakening that we maybe intuit to some degree from the stories from Buddhism and you know, in other spiritual traditions as well. But we can, because we ha already have some experience where we have aligned with our life, we've harmonized. And so for those of you who are going to stay for the small group discussions that uh, Shannon will facilitate in about 10 minutes, um, this is something you could share with each other. It would be so conducive of faith and confidence in our own, our heart's capacity to be free. Like, where are those places in your life that were difficult, but over time you learn to harmonize, you learn to embrace you learn to really live in the middle of it, not waiting for it to be different, but uh, practicing not being afraid of the feeling that we're already feeling, not being afraid of the circumstances or conditions. There's a really provocative uh, teaching that arose in the later Buddhist traditions that I found really powerful over the years of my practice, especially in the early years, 
the winds of circumstance, right? the comings and goings of the eight worldly winds, the winds of circumstance, all the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, they blow through emptiness. They move through this space, this natural space of my heart, my mind, my life. But it's, we, the, in Buddhism, you know, we talk about this being an empty space, meaning I'm, in a sense, using that personal pronoun, I'm experiencing this movement of circumstance, the joys and sorrows of my life, the disappointments, the successes, the praise and the blame. Those circumstances are moving through my heart, we'd say. I'm feeling it. I'm totally exposed. It's real. It's intense. But we're learning that this movement through our heart of our life, feeling what we feel. We don't need to be afraid of the beauty, the intensity, the difficulty, the pain. This is the, this is the where wrong view comes in. When I'm feeling an intense emotion, it comes with a deep habit that I have to freeze up, I have to own, I have to control, I have to wall off that painful feeling. So in the relative safety of our formal sitting time where, you know, if we're fortunate, the conditions are workable, right? Because we've found a place that's relatively safe and tranquil to sit for 15 minutes or an hour. And then we, in a way, there are many techniques, of course, but we let life, life rip. We let thoughts come and go, we let our emotions come and go, we allow the sensations of the body to come and go, and memory to come and go, and we practice not gripping, not clinging to what's coming and going. Oh, it's just a thought being numb. It's just an emotion being felt. It's just a memory arising and passing. It's just pain in the knee throbbing. It's just this disturbing sound or this pleasant sound coming and going. It's just this next experience being known. So we're positioning ourselves as a human being, sensitive, alive, upright. The stillness in the formal sitting posture is sort of an outward representation of equanimity. This like, I'm willing to practice being peaceful no matter what comes and goes. And even if something triggers a lot of reactivity and I'm sitting there freaking out, then I can, can keep practicing. Okay, I'm freaking out. I just want to hit somebody. I just want to run. I just want to... Can I be okay with that? So we're not... It's not about being perfect. It's about relating to whatever's happening in this from this place of balance. Oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. It feels like this now, and sometimes it's like this. One of my teachers from uh, my early years of practice, and somebody I teach with from time to time now, and just a really important teacher in my life, Carol Wilson, she uh, has this, she, this uh, little teaching she used to use, where she would say, it is the search for permanence that is so unsettling. Right? It's our need for solid ground. It's not the absence of solid ground that is so unsettling. 
it's this idea that there's a me who needs permanence. That's what makes our, sort of creates the the ground for the uncertainty that we experience so much of the time. Let me just share a little bit of uh, from Carol's article here. This is, uh, she's got a nice provocative title, Do We Really Believe do we really believe in impermanence? This she wrote way back in the 90s, I believe. Uh, but you, I think you could track that down. We have it on our website somewhere. But if you just Google Carol Wilson, do we really believe in impermanence? Otherwise, just contact the center. Maybe I'll ask uh, Gabe Keller-Flores to put it up on our um, blog when he gets back uh, from his retreat that he's going on this next week. First, she quotes from the Buddhist tradition where it said, one abides in peace who does not abide anywhere. Because when my heart has been trained to be open and aware and noticing what's coming and going, then I've, for a while, maybe even for minutes at a time, my mind has abandoned the need to establish myself as the observer, as the one who knows. So there's just the stream, the flow of experience being known, experiencing being known, experiencing being known, right? So in that sense, there's not a knower or an observer, there's just knowing. And there's the freedom of there not being a knower. And Carol, in this article, Do We Believe in, Do We Really Believe in Impermanence?, you know, she just asks the question, or uses the simile, rather, of being in prison and content to endlessly re- rearrange the furniture in our prison cell instead of walking out the door. So let me just read a little bit here. We can get so wrapped up in our search for a peaceful abiding in our search for happiness, that we overlook the possibility of just letting go of the search. And we can let go of trying to find peace of abiding, let go of that constant toing and froing between pleasant and unpleasant, liking and disliking, let go of the ongoing effort to manipulate experience. We are so involved in our judgments, our reactions, our assessments, our interpretations, our cognitions about anything that is happening, that we're often not even in touch with what is actually happening. And then a little later says, can you even believe that? And not merely believe it, but trust it enough to look for yourself. The freedom of heart, of mind, has nothing to do with phenomenal experience with what phenomenal experience is arising or passing and whether we like it or not. It has everything to do with the immediacy, totality, openness, vivid presence. And that requires, in that moment, total acceptance. Total acceptance doesn't mean resignation. It doesn't mean, okay, whenever bad things happen, I'll just sit here and let people walk all over me. It means in this moment, this is happening. It cannot be changed. 
it's already happening? Can I be totally present and alert with it, without resistance, without clinging in that moment? And this is just a, a more a intricate way of saying what the Buddha says in such a pithy, pithy, powerful statement that I use just to kind of reground myself. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata. That's how the Buddha referred to himself, the Tathagata, the one thus gone, is how it can be translated. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Buddha, namely liberation through non-clinging, which is just another way of saying being present, being open, being intimate, and really trusting that we don't have to make something, add something to that. And this is what we're practicing all day long, and this is what we practice in our sits. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.